Good morning and welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Sunday for Sunday, August 6th, 2022. We've got members of the media, academia, and financial services standing by as we analyze all the news in retirement markets, technology, so much more. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode of BRN Sunday. Let's kick things off with a look at what's happening with technology and consumer products. Joining us on the line is the managing editor for TheStreet.com, Daniel Klein. Dan, so great to talk to you again. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, so one of the topics I know we wanted to talk about, um, you know, a lot, obviously a lot going on with the market, market volatility. It's impacting pretty much every sector of the U.S. economy and the global economy. Um First, we talked about, I think several months ago, the great resignation. People were leaving their jobs, including tech workers. Maybe they were going out and becoming independent contractors, doing their own thing, starting another job. But now, given all the volatility in the market circumstances, tech workers are actually frightened they may lose their jobs, Dan. Yeah, it's sort of situational. So you look at what's going on right now, and uh, you know, Meta, the former Facebook, bet <laughs> – billions of dollars on the idea that we all wanted to, you know, move to the metaverse. And it turns out that maybe we don't. Maybe maybe reality is pretty good and we want to use the metaverse just for specific things. So what's going to happen here is if I'm a, a highly skilled coder, I'm not overly worried about losing my job. If you lose your job at Meta, well, they're hiring at Google, they're hiring at Amazon. And yeah, they've tightened up a little bit. But when you go down the chain, you know, a, a company like the one I work for is competing with Google for tech workers. So if there's a few more tech workers available, yeah, maybe more of them are going to work at, you know, retailers and publishing companies and other places that, that have lots of need for technology and maybe can't hire some of the best talent because the Googles of the world, the, the Metas, the Amazons of the world have been driving up those salaries. So these are people that have been absolutely in the catbird seat. Like, they could do whatever they want. They could demand whatever they want. When I, when I used to work at Microsoft, some of the, the coding talent, you know, would come in at 2 in the afternoon in their pajamas. Um, and I, I wish I was kidding, but I'm not. Those people might not have quite as many choices, but there's still going to be heavy demand. The people I worry about is all the ancillary workers at a tech company. If you're an editor at Microsoft, uh, you know, and I'm an editor for a living, if you're an editor at Microsoft, you're first on the chopping block because the higher-ups don't see what you do as valuable. If you're in sales and support and you're not like a huge performer, yeah, your job might be vulnerable. But of all the segments in the country, I'm not that worried about tech because, yes, there will be some select job loss. There will be you know, companies that uh, pair back initiatives that they hired a lot of people for, and that could lead to people losing their jobs. But those are people who are going to go into a market that's, that there's still a lot of demand. It's just sort of shifting where the demand is. Dan, I want to ask you, um, you know, technology serves such an important basis for 
everything that we do, you know, we're no longer faxing. Well, very few of us fax. Maybe some doctor's offices still fax, but there's very few of us using faxing, but a lot of us use technology. And I want to ask you about some of these hiring freezes, uh, maybe some of the lack of workers in some respects, and what does this mean for cybersecurity and privacy? You know, this is really a, a focal point of the federal government, state governments, and I know a lot of people are really concerned given all the uh, the ransomware and hacking that's gone on. So now I understand why you haven't been answering my faxes, but we could talk about that Yeah, I, I gave through the fax machine away about 20 years ago, Dan, or 10 years ago, 15 <laughs> years ago. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So <laughs> it is a concern. On the other hand, some of these you know, laid off or having a hard time finding a job workers who maybe wouldn't have considered the stability of a government career might be more open to working for the U.S. government, which provides, you know, you know, retirement and, and very steady paychecks and less volatility than the tech world. But I do think you're going to see some companies pare back their spending until they get hit. You know, I will tell you, as, as someone who's worked in the world of websites for a very long time, when your website gets hacked, you never again consider not spending the money on all the necessary security. And in a time where the economy is, is very tough, I'll speak very broadly and say that, you know, my company – has not in any way pared back spending on security because, in fact, we, we've added with, you know, two-factor authentication and, you know, other things meant to keep things safe. I think it's a mistake you only make once. So, yeah, some companies will do it, and those are either going to be companies on their last legs, like I'm pretty sure Sears isn't spending a lot of money on security right now, um, or they're going to be companies that, you know, are looking for places to cut and pick the wrong one, and that could literally mean their death. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it, it. we're going to have to see how this all – again, the economy by some accounts looks shaky, um, I, by others not. We don't know, you know recession, not recession. I don't know. I don't even know who, the, who determines that. I mean I know there's an arbitrary you know, three consecutive qu- down quarters. But anyway, uh, Dan, let's shift gears. Let's talk about the uh, satellite internet. I think this one's really interesting because uh, you have told us about SpaceX's – that's um, – Elon Musk's company, right? SpaceX is his his company, and uh, they're launching. They've launched Starlink, which is an internet satellite based internet. Uh, the FCC, the Federal Communications Committee, is considering opening up a certain band to allow some satellites, to, uh, I guess, more bandwidth, Dan, and uh, that will improve downloads. What can you tell us here? Yeah, so this technology is becoming more normalized. You, you have SpaceX, you have Jeff Bezos' company that's, that's doing this as well. And I worry a little bit about a sky full of, you know, an extra 30,000 satellites that eventually become space debris, but we can talk about that on another show. Mm-hmm. The reality is a lot of the world does not have that infrastructure, and even, you know, a lot of the, the, the U.S. And, and places that should have it um, Las Vegas is woefully under underserved with internet. So you're seeing companies, uh, you're, you're seeing Royal Caribbean bring in Starlink on only one of its ships now, but it's a very logical solution because as long as you have a view of the sky, you can use Starlink. So this is going to bring internet everywhere. Every person who owns an RV is going to get a Starlink or, or some comparable internet service. Every person who lives in a remote area I have a family house in New Hampshire that has satellite internet. It's fairly terrible. And if we were there regularly, if I was working from there, we'd have to get Starlink because that would be the viable option. 
this is technology that really works and solves a problem, I wonder if it's an interim solution. I'm not sure the expense of sending satellites into the sky to deliver internet isn't, is the best solution when really we could be wiring more of the world and using satellites for situations where it simply doesn't make sense. So I believe in the technology. It works. I've heard really good reports about it. Um, it's certainly not the same as a high-speed, you know, home connection, but it is much better than what we've traditionally been able to, to deliver. Dan, uh, I guess by all accounts, current download speeds are around 200 megabits. Maybe not great if you're gaming, streaming from multiple devices, but still pretty good for a lot of homes to check email, maybe set up web pages, etc., maybe a little browsing of YouTube. But I think the goal here is to upgrade to one gigabit. Um, that's a big jump. That's literally five times what you're getting today. Um, is it possible technologically? Yeah, it's possible. It's also not necessary for most people. So, you know, I have one gig internet, and I guess if I'm broadcasting, that's useful. But the reality is I've gone to Zoom meetings with, you know, internet at a, a cafe that isn't a Starbucks that's, that's not great speeds. So, yeah, overall, having these abilities is great. And as we're all consuming more streaming video and other things, having the redundancies and the, the bigger pipeline for everybody, it's a bit like a highway. If you build an eight-lane highway, it accounts for future growth. Um, and things are only going to get heavier. Well, that's not true. Sometimes technology makes them smaller. But we're going to use more and more technology. So I would, you know, I would say the reality is we're moving in the right direction, but it's a heavy investment. You pay a fair amount of money if you want these services. And I would say we're in like inning two of the, of a nine inning game because this has to get smarter. It has to get cheaper. It has to get easier to send satellites or to maybe not use satellites. I mean, in some cases we've seen like blimps and other, other temporary technology for like adding internet at like the Super Bowl or events like that. I, I went to the Super Bowl many years ago and you simply couldn't like send a text message uh, and they've been able to fix that. So all of this is advancing, but I'm not sure this is what it's going to look like. Yeah, Dan, when you say the cost is expensive, what's an idea of a, a monthly uh, expense for, for satellite internet at only 200 megabits? I, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Um, I know that previous satellite providers, you know, sold you like a, a block of, of, you know, gigabytes, and then you paid, you know, per download, per upload. Um, I believe Starlink is all-inclusive. You have to pay a few hundred dollars for the satellite, and then it's somewhere in the, I don't know, between 80 and $160 a month. It may, it may vary. Um, more expensive than getting it through Comcast or whoever your provider may be, but also generally – being used in places where those services either don't exist or where they're not viable or just sometimes where people are fed up with those companies. They're, they're generally the, the lowest rated companies on the American uh, customer satisfaction index. But <laughs> as more people adopt this, one, they're going to need more satellites, but prices do generally come down. I have a hard time believing, though, that satellites are going to be our broad internet. I have a little bit more belief in like what T-Mobile is doing with 5G. Um, most places in the country have a good T-Mobile signal as they continue to roll out their 5G network. That's going to be a viable 
internet service at an affordable price for most people. You know, you'll be able to watch Netflix. It might not be like a perfect, super fast experience. You'll be able to do all the things your kid can do as homework, all the things most people do. I think that makes more sense than everyone having like a super fast satellite connection in their house uh, when T-Mobile can deliver it over their cellular network. Last question, Dan. This is kind of an out-of-its-world question. Uh, you know, uh, planning to go back to the moon, I, I would assume that astronauts not only would use um, radio frequencies in order to send, uh, you know, uh, signals and communications back, but wouldn't they want to use uh, Internet uh, to answer their emails? I mean, what? so you're talking about not only here to, to – um, uh, terrestrially here in the U.S., but also or here in the world and on Earth, but also potentially other planets, right? I mean, uh, going to the moon, you're 200,000, what's it, 200,000 miles or 200,000, yeah, 200,000 miles away. You need something to relay a signal, and wouldn't that be an approach to doing that? I'd go with a fax machine, but yes, I think <laughs> that would be – sorry, that was a callback there. Yes. I, I, I yeah, it, it, it would be viable, and I don't know if that means positioning satellites differently or the absolute technicalities of, of it working, but, you know, I'm still hopeful that, you know, somewhere, you know, maybe in my, my 60s or 70s, I'm 48 now, uh, I'll be taking that moon cruise with a, with a visit to, you know, the, uh, the no-gravity area on the surface. Um, and, yeah, I'm going to want to have an Internet connection to send pictures back and all the other things you do. I do think that the moon isn't that far away when you talk, you know, internet terms. But again, this would all be supposition because as you may know, Jeff, I've never been to the moon. No, no, you have not. But it wouldn't be cool to go. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the technology gets us there. And I mean, you're seeing so many advances both here in the U.S., but also some of these rovers now have the ability to fly helicopters now on Mars. They are getting regular downloads of new software from from here on Earth, it's pretty amazing how far we've come in only, what, 50 or 60 years of, uh, of uh, space travel. Dan Klein, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, and enjoy the rest of your weekend, my friend. I'll see you next week. Thank you, Jeff. Bye. Welcome back. Now, time to talk talk markets joining me on the line he is the lead anchor for the td ameritrade network oliver rennick oliver so great to talk to you thanks so much for stopping by the show this uh, morning appreciate it jeff absolutely always happy to contribute yeah well i mean you you were already contributing uh, you bookend the programming on td ameritrade network so we're we're very appreciative for the eight to ten minutes you can give us uh at your convenience let's talk about the jobs <laughs> number um job Number. I don't want to steal your thunder here, but job numbers on Friday uh, beat, Huge. beat estimates. Um, are we in a recession? <laughs> the estimate. Yeah, that is uh, the semantic debate uh, that people are uh, vociferously engaged in. And it uh, kind of misses the forest of the trees a little bit. Um, I do think that people are being a bit flippant in the way they are dismissing our traditional uh, recession definition. I mean, if it's that, if it's not, okay, fine. There's a group of people who define these things. And, uh, okay, uh, the real question is more relevant for most people, at least in my world, is 
Uh, what does it mean for my investments? And what does the economy mean for my investments? Um, and so as we characterize the economy, we have to give credence to the weakness that it has shown over the last two and a half months. Our economic data has roundly missed expectations up until this Friday and an earlier ISM services print this week. These are two big beats that came a little bit out of the blue. Uh, the trend has been also on a weekly basis to see jobless claims rise now throughout the summer. And so that made this employment report particularly surprising. That being said, there has been no debate that the labor market remains firm and strong. Even if the number hit the 250,000, it was expected to decline to from the 370 roughly the last time around, that would still have been a really impressive number today. So even if you are uh, bearish on the stock market or doubtful about the economy, uh, it's been very difficult to make the case that uh, things are terrible uh, because they're really not. Things can't be terrible when you're delivering these kinds of job gains, mm -hmm. even if it wasn't a shock like this, even if it was the number that was roughly half what this was expected to be. That still would have been a fairly robust economic environment from a labor standpoint. Now, there are catches to that, though, uh, with the labor market right now, and there are also uh, some good things happening in general for the economy just compared to, you know, the depths of the COVID pandemic. So the debate about, you know, what to call it, let's call it a slowing recovery is the best way to describe it. But the real complication that matters to most people, at least from my perspective, who are traders and investors, is what is the stock market's relationship with the economy. And what we're seeing on Friday is that it is a very twisted relationship because the stock market is down and we'll see how it closes. But the first kind of meaningful sell-off here that's happened in, in a couple of weeks, we've had some down days. But to see the way the market just immediately dives on a, in a shockingly good economic print mm -hmm. is a bit disturbing. And that's why I find it still hard to be extremely optimistic from an investor's standpoint, because generally uh, the economy improves and the direction of productivity and capitalism over time is a positive one. So if you're in an environment where positive gains in the economy are tied to selling in the stock market because of what the Fed is going to do. It's a bit of a twisted logic. And so then we look back at the last month where the stock market has rallied and we say, okay, if stocks are selling off after a shockingly good employment report, then why were they rallying the last month? And so the rally in the last month suggests that the economy was weakening. If that relationship, that inverse relationship between a good data print and the stock market can be projected backwards, which it can, I believe, then the best explanation for why stock for rallying last month is because that economic data was deteriorating the way I just described. So that puts us in a spot that makes it very difficult here, which is will the market disconnect from this relationship and trade higher as the economy improves, or do we have to choose as investors between a positive economy and a positive stock market. And the last several months have suggested to us that we do have to choose between one or the other because the stock market has been selling off since November last year. 
And the period between November and roughly the summer was marked by good developments on the economic front, reopening trends, progress in the labor market, and generally health in the economy. So at this juncture, it's a very difficult proposition um, to continue to buy into this one-month rally in the stock market after this employment data, because this employment data suggests that there's enough strength in the economy to make the Fed feel good about hiking interest rates and actually applying pressure to the economy. So we're in this catch-22 scenario, and that's where you have stocks then in the S&P 500 struggling to get above their last month high on this uh, Friday after this employment report. Uh, thanks, Oliver. Uh, you know, the the U.S. is not unto itself. It's part of a global economy. H- how, when you look at what's happening around the globe and, uh, you know, everyone waits with bated breath on the on the Fed, but you look at like the Bank of, what is it, the Bank of England, I think, raised rates. I mean, you look at rates going up. How are the world's stock markets reacting um, to what's happening here? Obviously, or maybe not obvious to people, is that the U.S. is really an economic engine. It's so unique economically and how it and and uh, you know as a republic and, and how it operates. Uh, but but how is the world reacting to this? Um, I guess is my next question. Well, uh, right now the U.S. dollar is pretty much the be-all, end-all to answer that question because European stock markets and global stock markets would be doing much better if it weren't for the dollar's rise. Uh, If you take out the dollar currency, then you actually do have a fair amount of strength and outperformance in some of these international markets. However, the strength in the dollar is making it difficult for them to be a rewarding uh, investment. So um, right now, basically, the short answer is the U.S. still is the best house on the block, but it might be worth investors and probably is worth investors to really uh, diversify their portfolio in a way that maybe they didn't need to, because the big cap tech leadership that was the pillar of the U.S. bull is rocky. Mm-hmm. And the tech trade overall has been the weakest one in this bear market. So because of that, there's really an opportunity for the rest of the world to outperform now. Um, however, that being said, is um, other central banks around the world are starting to get a little bit more hawkish too. So that dollar pressure on international investing could um, see some reprieve. Uh, but it's a little bit of a gamble at this point. The dollar is up really big on Friday after that employment report, and it looks like that is telling us the Fed will continue to be the leader from a tightening perspective as well. And that's just going to make it tough to um, it's going to make it tough to be invested in U.S. stocks from an index level, and it's also going to make it tough to be invested in foreign companies because that dollar trade-off is just going to be difficult to overcome. Oliver, last question. Uh, your network, you, you, in addition to giving insight to the investor, there's some tutorials, education that happens throughout the day on the programming. Let's talk about um, portfolio reallocation. I'm not going to ask you how to reallocate your portfolio, but is now the time? Is it, you know, general sense um, during your production meetings and you're listening to your colleagues uh, give advice and talk about um, what people should consider? 
is now the time to recalibrate your portfolio because in the retirement industry, uh, we tell people in, when you're a long-term investor, readjust your portfolio at least once a year or at least think about it. Take a look at what you have and think about it. But it is now the time to do it given the positive job news. Uh, you know, what, are, what are people on the network, not on your show, but what are people articulating? Um, I would say that probably the answer is yes. There is, um, and it comes back to that big cap tech element. When you have the um, giants growing at a slower rate, uh, slowing hiring, cutting jobs, um, that is an environment we've never seen before. It um, really in the last uh, generation of investing, the last decade of investing. So because of that, the direction of the indexed investor is not as um, certain. So index investing is uh, um, going to be coming under some fire here as the market cap leadership changes. Uh, and uh, when you have inflation as high as it is, you just are, have to be more wary about having a traditional approach uh, because we are in very, very unique and historically rare times when inflation is as high as it is. Now, maybe it'll peak out and maybe the worst has passed us. That's all a very valid conversation to have. But until the evidence changes, until the data, until the CPI starts printing lower or the PCE starts printing below the Fed's estimates that they need to see to cool off their approach, until those things happen, it behooves the average investor to try and take some effort to at least hedge some of their portfolio, either through inflation-linked assets or commodities. You don't want to overdo it because these can be very volatile assets as well. But generally speaking, one should um, at this point um, ensure they're not over-levered to big tax-driven indexes. Yeah. Well, Oliver, I, I guess the, the key word here is people are going to have to uh, keep watching your program, uh, keep getting the information, t consulting with financial professionals to make the best decision they can and take a look at what their time horizon is and also their risk tolerance in terms of taking on some additional risk, maybe looking at different asset classes. But hey, we're going to leave it there. Oliver Rennick, it's always a pleasure getting your insight, very detailed insight, I should say. I was trying to take notes. Uh, you're going to have to give me your cue cards. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, at the conclusion of this call. Have a great rest of the weekend. We'll talk to you again very soon, my friend. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Sunday. Have a topic of interest, somebody you think we should talk to, then drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest security news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, and all in one place, check out our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, we'll visit our website and, of course, our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRNAM. We'll be joined by a very special guest. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget... Roll with the changes.